Welcome back to the Bag Drop Untold Stories in Golf. I'm your co-host, Matt Constantine, here with the professor. Professor, how you doing this morning? I'm I'm I have to be honest, I'm nervous. We we've got a we've got a pros pro that we're going on with. And I am, you know, I do a lot of interviewing and for my job and my qualitative research side and the psychology side. But man, we've got we've got the pros pro and I'm just I'm afraid of what I'm gonna screw up. Yeah, I, I I almost feel weird interviewing a guy that I have fallen asleep to his his voice and woken up to his voice many many times with the Golf Channel, Gary Williams, on the show. Yeah, we, we got a, a it's a good one. I'm looking forward to chatting with him. Yeah, so today to prepare, you know, typically I come in you know an hour or two, do some research on our, our people or whatever, but I always get distracted by email. And here's my fact of the day. Do you know how how much of a day a typical worker spends on email? Take how a guess. Much? I'm going to say uh, 2.5 hours. You're actually pretty close. You've researched this. No, You've no, I this. swear. I just I just spend about that time every day in an email. <laughs> it's anywhere between 25 to 40% of the day a typical worker spends on email. Um, yeah, email is fascinating in terms of the stuff it's enabled us to do, but also the stuff it's cost us in terms of focus and whatever. But all as to say today, I did not look at email once before this interview because I'm like, I have to do the research, like some research. I have to have to really think hard uh, about, and take advantage of this awesome opportunity to learn from someone who who does this as a living and has always done it at the top of the game. Yeah, yeah, no, and I love the game of golf. I mean, I think that's the thing I'm I'm also excited about is just he he has always come across to me as someone that is deeply deeply in love with this game. So um, we'll get to it. Uh, Full thank you to our sponsor of the podcast this month, New Club Golf Society. Old is new, traditions are back. Club life is important to all golfers. So join a community in New Club. We have uh, applications are still being accepted for the 2023 season. And our main promotion, Kevin, it, it bring a bring a friend. Golf is better with others. So if you bring uh, a fellow to join you as, as uh, a member of New Club, you'll get $200 off your, your membership for the month of May. So uh, definitely a, a one of our bigger promotions and a, a great chance to join, whether you're in one of our local chapters of Atlanta, Chicago, or our international and national members all across the globe. It's just a community of bona fide golfers who truly love this game. And for our current members, we had we had our first Chicago outdoor event this this past uh, weekend at Canal Shores. We always kick it off with Canal Shores. They got they're going under the knife June yeah. and their total renovation, which will be so cool to watch unfold. But uh, but we had a blast. All the kids were out. This is a very most casual event of the year. So the kids and the dogs and uh, friends galore were all out for that one. That was a blast. And we have so many more to look forward to this year. Uh, this coming week, the Founders Cup, Big Cedar Lodge, uh, we, the registration for that Founders Cup comes on 6-7, June 7th. So don't miss that circular calendar. Thank you to New Club Golf Society for, again, sponsoring our pod and, and the awesome team that's doing really good work there at New Club. Without further ado... On to the show. Let's get to it. Gary Williams, welcome to the bag drop this morning. Matt, Kevin, I hope you guys are well. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Same here. Same here. Your name, Gary, has been circulating around this podcast 
for for what about a month and a half now, Kevin. We the same week you uh, were interviewing Ben Crenshaw talking about a gentleman named Carl Jackson. We were interviewing Carl Jackson talking about Ben Crenshaw. So I listened to that last night. I loved your chat with Ben, and uh, most recently your your good pal and, and plane buddy Jay Billis was on the pod, and he had terrible things to say about your golf game. So I wanted to kind of start there. Uh, tell us a little bit about, I, actually, I'd like to hear about both Ben Crenshaw, because I know he's one of your favorite golfers, and then <laughs> Jay Billis, because I heard he's one of your favorite golfers over 6'5". Yeah, um, actually, that's not true. Um, <laughs> the dichotomy between Ben Crenshaw and Jay Billis is, is so profound. Uh, we may need to budget another hour. Ben is one of the finest gentlemen uh, that I've ever met or known. And Jay is one of the most despicable human beings uh, that has ever been perpetuated upon the golfing community. Uh, I hate that I have any uh, any responsibility whatsoever uh, that that you know to, to light the fire that was lit under him when it came to the game of golf. Um, Jay actually made a hole in one yesterday. Um, now he made it at Pine Valley. Uh, but it was on the short course. Ooh. So I get the video of him approaching the hole to get the ball out of the hole. And, and when I got a little bit more intel, it was on the second hole of the short course. And first of all, that's a non-starter. That's not a hole-in-one. Um, they, do, they don't sell photographs of, of the short course holes for you to commemorate hole-in-ones. So he then said it counts it was 187 yards over water. My response was, it could have been over the Strait of Magellan. It doesn't count. <laughs> so I, I got to ask, do we know, does Jay have a, a hole-in-one other than this one? The fact that you guys interviewed him and he didn't share that means that he must have been medicated when he was on. He used <laughs> leads with that. He's had two. He had one, he had one at Kapalua. And then last summer, he made another one at Wade Hampton. Oh, wow. Well, he's, okay. he's getting his rounds in. I mean, it's just a, it's a numbers game at a certain point. What about exactly obligatory question on hole-in-ones? What about you, Gary? How many? You zero. Oh. Zero. Oh. Matt, the answer is zero. And that is why the fact that Jay, you know, it, this is, this is a, among the many points of contention that I have with Jay, as I expressed to him when he made his first, Congratulations! There's an element of luck associated with holes in one, and he and so then he, of course, being the litigious type that he is, um, then has made this a lifelong. Well, you know, every time somebody makes a hole in one, Gary just thinks it's a lucky shot. No, I said there's an element. Of, so anyway, we've gone. The fact that Tiger literally went almost 20 years not making a hole in one anywhere, not not just competitive golf. I don't know if you guys remember when he played Phil in the match. Yeah. Um, he was, he was, they were mic'd and they're walking, and he shared anecdotally with Phil, hey, I, I played with with Freddie yesterday down at the Madison Club and I made a home one. I hadn't made a hole in one since 1998. And I'm going, oh my God, like <laughs> that's extraordinary that, that that guy didn't make one. And here's Jay Billis making two. The element of luck. Confirmed. So where where if you get to, if you got to choose, where's your hole in one happening? Uh the twelfth hole at Augusta National. That's the one. Uh, and I've only played the golf course one time and 
and thought I'd made a one. It was that hard left, you know, you know, there's no back or front. It's such a shallow green. It's that, that far left pin. Um, and it was right at it and my heart stopped and it, you know, it was five feet. It wasn't, I've, I've, I've blown up two holes in my life, but anyway, it'd be 12 yeah. because then I, I, I mean, honestly, you and Seb Straka, you got one in the practice round this year. Yeah. What's that? I said, Seb Straka got one in the practice round this year. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Uh, it would be there. I, I, you know, look, there's a short list. The, the great video of the kid who made the one on 16 at Cyprus when the, within the last year, mm-hmm. that'd, be, that'd be right up there too. Well, yeah. either of those, unlike Jay's yesterday, you'd be able to have a picture of the hole and be able to put it above your, uh, replace the picture behind you right now. That, that's actually Cyprus right there. Oh, that I is, took yeah. this photograph. That is uh, the 17th at Cyprus. I took that some years ago. But uh, yeah, uh, yes, you're exactly right. So Jay, Jay may walk into the shop because that's the way he's wired at Pine Valley and have the temerity to ask them if they have the picture of the second hole of the short course and they will laugh at him um, as well they should have. <laughs> Uh, that, that's great. We really enjoyed our time with him, but he gets enough spotlight in, in March and, and you know, we're, we're into May now. Let's, let's talk about, about Gary Williams. Uh, Gary, um, you know, I, I don't get that nervous on the show. We're a couple of chuckleheads who love talking about golf, but when I do, it's usually because I'm interviewing a great interviewer and, and you, sir, are a world-class interviewer. So I wanted to kind of start on your, your journalistic chops because you know, maybe many of Kevin and I's formidable years were listening to to many of your interviews and your chats with you know some of our heroes in golf, and uh, I, I always want to make sure I do do great interviewers justice. But do you um, do you believe this is something that you're born with? You know, being inquisitive, as you as you just said, uh, having that skill set is it something you're born with to be a great interviewer, or did you build that skill set over time? Um, it's a really good question. I, I think that, um, I, I've always believed this about, about the medium of television, uh, m- maybe even more so than radio. You either can or you can't do it, but it doesn't mean that you don't expect to refine whatever skill you have, that that's what repetition is for. Um, so I, I do believe that the, that the inquisitive mind, the curious mind, is more inclined to be pretty capable um, at, at asking questions. Because if you're curious, you want to know what the answer is. So if you want to know what the answer is, that means that you're a, a pretty capable listener. I think listening is the most valuable skill that any interviewer uh, can have uh, for, for a couple reasons. One, I don't want interviews to sound like they're just that, that they're interviews. I want them to be conversations like we're having now. Um, and, and the other part of it is, is I think when people hear that, that based on response, that you are then just then following with whatever it is in all likelihood with what they just said, that you've, ta- you've taken an interest in, in what it is that they just shared with you. That is a display of unselfishness. And if you, if you display those types of things, I think the engagement of the person you're talking to gets heightened. So I, I was at a very young age exposed to a lot of news magazine-like television 
by my parents. My mother was a literature major. Uh, my father was somebody who was in the private sector in the, the paper industry and, you know, was responsible for a lot of people. And he was, he was somebody who wound up teaching leadership in the later stages of his life. So I was around two people who invested in other people. Um, and so I, I started watching the way that they comported themselves and in turn, the things that they liked, which was like a lot of interview shows. So I like, I got turned on by, by the process of, and it didn't matter what the subject was. There were certain things that I was more, you know, I had a greater affinity for than others. Um, but I think that if you're not somebody who is curious, you're probably not going to be a very good interviewer. And then secondly, um, you can get better at it, but it is inherent that you've got to take the time to listen to what it is that, that the person is sharing with you. And my father, who was not a, he was not a professorial person. He was, he just had a lot of wisdom and a lot of love. He said to me, Gary, you know, hearing is a sense. Listening is a skill. Try to have this, try to, try to be possessive of the latter. I'm, I'm jotting that down. If you can hear the papers, that is a great, great uh, piece of advice. So hearing is a sense, listening is a skill. So I'm going to ask you selfishly, how do you go about preparing for an interview? Because what really struck me there to maybe try to embody what the advice you just gave was the listening aspect of things, which then requires an interview for you to be spontaneous based on what the interviewee is giving you and responding to that. So how do you go about preparing and maybe specifically balancing like, there's questions you want to get at, but then knowing you have to balance it with what the interviewee is giving you so you can go with the flow of the interview. Kevin, it's, um, I think that's one of, one of the, the really fun challenges of the exercise. Um, I'll, I'll try to answer it th th this way. Um, the, the gentleman who put me on television was a man named Chuck Gerber, who had an interesting life. Sadly, he passed away a couple of years ago. Um, but he was a real key figure at ESPN on the management side. Before that, his former life, he was actually John Candy's manager. Um, and you guys are, are young enough, but you're probably, I, I, I know you're cultured enough to know John oh, Candy. Come on, oh, come on, Gary, Uncle Buck. Come on, yeah, you're not going to forget Uncle Buck. And I could go down, I could list his credits. Anyway, this guy put me on television and he didn't say this before I had done a game. It was a college basketball game. It was after the first one, and I went in, and we were constructively uh, and instructively deconstructing uh, the, the work. And he said, Gary, if you use 10% of what you prepared for, you talk too much, meaning you're never going to be able to jam in either the information or the questions uh, it, it just shows that you were just, just know you were prepared. And you know what? If you use it in the next game or the next year, good. And if you don't, who cares? You were more prepared and you now are possessive of, of, of a certain amount of information. So I, I really took that to heart that just because I have 25 questions, don't, don't feel like if you don't get to all of them, that the work was not complete. And then the other part of it, which I think Kevin is, is really, really important. And this is something 
that I have to be at times conscious of, but now having done it enough, it, it's more an instinctive thing. You got to be nimble. You, if, if a conversation goes in a direction that maybe you weren't prepared for, don't act as if you were unprepared for it to go in that direction. Just, just, just embrace it. Like, oh my God, I never thought that we would find ourselves talking about the coefficient of restitution. Like who in the hell would think that was interesting? But you know what? It may be based on the answer you've gotten from a question, lead itself to, to learning more about the person or more about a subject that maybe you weren't necessarily that uh, inclined to either talk about or be prepared to talk about. But I think nimbleness and being malleable um, is really, really important. Like, it's not about you. It's about them. And if, if they choose to talk about something, you know what? Indulge them. And, and you may find yourself down a rabbit hole, but you know what? Save it for the next time. All these questions that you prepared for. But look, it's inherent that you... You guys, me, anybody else who wants to do this, you know, take the time, show the person or the people that you're going to talk to, you know, the respect that you went like, God, I, I didn't know you knew that about me. That, that is another way of you're, you're not trying to artificially ingratiate yourself to that person. But I can tell you that, God, people are like, wow, really? Like, that's really I the fact that you read that about me. Again, people lean forward even more if they sense an investment on the part of the interviewer um, to, to learn about them. So learning about them um, and then understanding that if 10% is, is achieved, good for you, but, but be ready to pivot and, and ready to audible based on what you've heard. You just never know what you're going to get. With with everyone you've sat down with, Gary, and so many conversations over the years, is there one that maybe stands out of, of where you had to be real nimble, where you had a nice prep, you thought this was definitely going to be, you know, X, Y, Z is what we're talking about today, and they went, you know, W, C, Z. What, like, do you have one that comes to mind? Oh, gosh, there's, I mean, there are, there are a number of people who surprised me. Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, Lucas Glover. Lucas Glover is somebody who, and I, I bring this up because I think it, it amplifies the point about you, you just never know. Um, I had no idea the first, after he was kind of introduced to me and everybody else after he won the U.S. Open in 2009, um, he, had, he had such an appetite for the written word. He's a voracious reader. I didn't know that. Um, and so we, we wound up that we started talking about books. And, and that wound up being what we talked about. And look, does that maybe limit the audience? Possibly. But you know what? At times, you guys, <laughs> you're going to hear something. You're going to be like, wow, I, I, that's interesting. And I'm going to pursue it. And you find yourself uh, down a rabbit hole. There, there have been other people that, look, Jack Nicholas is always um, and has always been not the greatest challenge. It's the greatest opportunity. Uh, because of one, the depth of accomplishment makes people, you know, I think more inclined to listen. But here's the thing about Nicholas. There's never been a time that I've interviewed him that he didn't say to me beforehand, what are you going to ask me? 
And I would, you know, I would always say, well, I, I was thinking, and I would get to maybe the second bullet point and he'd say, oh, just ask me anything. So, so there were a couple things that were at play here. One, there was a tedium to the fact that he's done this so many times. He, he always, <laughs> at least with me, interviews a, a little cranky, but naturally he can't help himself, no matter what the subject is, to want to give you the best answer. Not because he's pedantic, but because he's so damn competitive. Like, I'm not going to do this half-assed. He can't. He's, he's not inclined to be that way. So um, I've, done, I've done, obviously, a ton of golf with him, golf subject matter with him. But I found myself, and again, it's hard to prepare for something you don't know that much about. I did an event with him in the Keys a couple years ago, and it was about um, conservationism. And like, I had no idea he, he, he was somebody who was kind of intellectually and emotionally invested in that, but he was. Um, and that was an hour that wasn't uncomfortable. It was just different. Um, so yeah, Jack always, Lucas Glover won. And I will, I will add this one. I was very prepared for this interview, but I didn't know to the degree that he got as emotional as he did when Ted Bishop lost his job with the PGA of America um, as the president of the organization in the latter part of 2014. It was after the fallout of Glenn Eagles, the Ryder Cup, and he had tweeted something in response to Ian Poulter, and he referenced him as a little girl. And, and that led to like this accelerated um, you know, path of termination by the PGA of America. And I was the first one to interview him after, and, and it happened that day. Um, and he came into the studio at Golf Channel and he got very, very emotional. And, and, and specifically emotional as it related to his own children, his daughters. And I have daughters. And look, no matter how much you want to kind of maintain you know, this certain veneer, I found myself getting emotional, not because I, I, you know, you know, I felt the way I felt about what he had done. I thought it was reckless and stupid. Um, I didn't feel like it rose to the level of, of him losing his job, like really on, on the doorstep of him finishing this volunteer position. But anyway, that was another very interesting, challenging exercise that I didn't see coming. Gary, you brought up literature there. I, I want to touch on that um, for a minute. And rem, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it was your mother that helped you get into literature, correct? Yes. So how did that go about? Talk about your mom for a little bit and how, like, what were those formative years that really got you interested in literature and reading? You know, I, I was growing up in a house uh, with two people who, who grew up with such different backgrounds. My father was an athlete from, from the South. My mom was was an Irish Catholic from Queens, New York, whose father was a New York City firefighter. They met in Hawaii uh, by happenstance after my mother's family didn't have money for her to go to college. Uh, and she was, she was one, of the, one of the best students in her class. My father was stationed in Hawaii in the Coast Guard. Anyway, the point is that my, you know, my parents fell in love, got married. Um, they were different people, but my, my, they, they were both very curious people. 
And my mother was very studious and very interested in the written word. And so she went back and while I and my, and my two sisters were growing up in Ridgewood, New Jersey, she was going to, to night school at Ramapo College in Northern New Jersey and getting her literature degree. She graduated from college when I was in college. After years and years of taking a class or two each semester for well over a decade in order to be able to, um, she graduated with like a 395 wow. GPA. And so she was, she was very interested in, in, in obviously in not only the written word, but also, you know, like John Steinbeck and, and William Faulkner, uh, were, were a couple of her favorites. Um, so my mom required me to read a book every week. So this was in addition to whatever schoolwork I was doing. And my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Lundberg, at the end of our academic year, gave me a copy of The Red Badge of Courage. That was the first grown-up book that anybody had ever given to me. And I was, and my mother told me, you should be really proud that, that Mrs. Lundberg thinks you have the chops to like consume this. So I, I, it was a source of pride. So I took it upon myself to start, you know, consuming this stuff on a, on a regular basis and, you know, running stride for stride with that in my mother's, not, not like, like stern insistence that I do this, like just, Hey, you know what, this is going to benefit you. You may like it. And I did. I was also a huge sports fan. So I started reading, you know, whether it was Frank DeFord or, or Jim Murray or Dave Anderson. Um, and I had to go to the library. This was not <laughs> oh internet. Um, you know, I would read the, the newspapers in the New York area. And then when I was in high school, there was a, there was a, a magazine, a news magazine with like a murderer's row of writers that were part of it called The National uh, that I started to read. Um, so I was reading not only like great, great literary work, but I was also reading great sports writing. So it was all at the, it was all at the behest of my mom, um, who to this day, 83 years of age, living in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And you know what she does? She goes to class. She takes a class every semester at the university. Um, so curious mind still. You're hitting on it. You're hitting on all the professor, the professor Moore here. You see all the equations. You talked about the constitution of restitution or whatever the heck that means. I, I'm not the one uh, in literature. Kevin, I'll let you take this interview from here because I know you're excited. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I do have definitely seven follow ups. So I'll stick with one. So, do you still read pretty religiously? Is it still you know something that you regularly do? Um, so obviously, I do. You I, you can't see all of my volumes of these leather bound books around me. No, they're not leather bound. Uh, but, but you know, I, and this is not to show off. It's like, where else am I going to put them? I'm surrounded by books here. Um, yeah. So I, I, yes, I'm, I'm reading as my wife says, can you, can you put the books away? Cause I've got about seven on my nightstand. I can't read one at a time. Um, I, I read, I'm reading probably four books right now. Um, and I don't know. I don't know. I, maybe that's not the best way to do it as far as, you know, retaining 
the idea or the the premise of these books. I don't read fiction um, on every every blue moon. I'll read, you know, like a Harlan Coben book. Uh, but by and large, I want to read something that happened or about somebody in their life. So yes, I read constantly. So it sounds like nonfiction then. What's the yes. what's the nonfiction du jour right now? What are the books that you're reading? Any of them? You know, are we have I, definitely reading, our, our listeners love to read. Definitely, we have a yeah, read, book yeah. club, the whole deal. So. By all means, share away. Um, I'm I'm currently reading um, three different things. I'm reading "Discipline Is Destiny" by Ryan Holiday. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I'm an enormous fan of his work. Yeah, very good. Uh, you know, small books, small chapters, short chapters. You know, life lessons. I'm reading a biography on Charles Barkley, um, which just came out. I can't. The, the author's name is escaping me. Tim something, and then. Um, I'm reading uh, a book called uh, When Revelation Comes about, uh, a, about a gentleman who was an architect by trade, but a, a you know, total golf honk like we are, whose son was a very good player, a uh, very good junior player, was going to be a college player, um, and his son had a, uh, had a drug overdose and lost his life. And it's about this gentleman. Um, going back to Scotland where he has had a lifelong love affair to try to find purpose in his life after his son had died. It's deep and hard at times um, because you can, you can, you can read the pain. So those are the three books right now. You're uh you're making me tear up a little bit here. Jim Hartzell is a dear friend of both of ours, dear, very dear friend of mine. Um, He actually just, Yesterday, departed for a flight back to Scotland to spend another couple weeks over there to connect with the people that are in that book and spend time with them and everything. Wow. Um, so he will be um, very touched, Gary, that you brought up that book and what you've said about it. I know Jim, that'll touch Jim, What you, just yeah. what you said right there. Yeah, good friend, past guest of this too. You know, he's got a couple other books out there, but that is... Uh, I love this golf world for that very reason, Gary, you know, that you're reading a good friend of ours book. Uh, that's so cool. That's so cool. Well, it's, um, you know, they, they sent me the back nine press sent me the book. Um, and I, 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 I was going on a trip, um, to Italy to see my daughter who's studying in Florence for the semester. And I had golfer's journal. Uh, I had uh, The Ball in the Air, the new book by Michael Bamberger, who I just had on this past week, and I had Jim's book. Um, so I was kind of, I was, you know, Golfer's Journal, which is like, that's a magazine. Um, anyway, I, 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 I consumed uh, Michael's book because I knew I was having him on. I want to have Jim on because, you know, that book is, um, that's really, it's getting to something it's such an, an extraordinary loss um, and a level of grief that is not understandable, um, but it, it does amplify to all of us that, that golf is, a, is an oddly therapeutic thing. Um, and it's not just the exercise of playing, it's being around it. It's the landscapes. It's, and, and the detail in which he talks about these places Many of them that I've never visited. I've been to a lot of the biggies over there, but a lot of these these it it it's it's inspiring and it makes me motivated. Like I got to go back. I got to got to pitch a tent and find these spots. Um, but anyway, it's it's 
for him to take on that exercise of of sharing that is is wow profound is there uh we always end up in Scotland on this show too, Gary. I don't know what that <laughs> yeah. says about us, but and, and of course our friend Jim Harsell takes us to Scotland. But um, uh, I, I, we'll we'll get to some courses over there because I read some things about your favorite experiences in golf, and I wanted to ask you about those. But before we we leave the literature topic, I wanted to ask: uh, Have you? I'm sure you have some books scoped out for yourself, right? I mean, you're a voracious reader. You've been in this game for so long and you're so thoughtful about so many aspects of it. Is there a topic that you really want to write about? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it right now. Um, and it's, it, and it's, it's not, it's not easy, not because it's, it's hard to share. Um, and it's, it's about my own journey and it's not to be selfish uh, it's, it's, you know, I've, I've had my own challenges. I'm, 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 you know, certainly willing to talk about them. So, you know, it's interesting. I've wanted to write about some different stuff and I'm, I'm now embarking on the exercise of talking about my life. Uh, and, and, and obviously so much of it about my life, uh, in the game of golf, how much, you know, the game of golf has given me. Um, but you know, it's funny. I've, I've wanted to write, like I, 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 and we just saw the other day that Will Ferrell's going to do some some sitcom um, about a guy who leaves to play in a in a in a rival golf league from the established established league, which I, I think you know. Look, he's hilarious. I hope it's funny. Um, I really believe. I've always believed that there was an HBO series. The 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 archetypes of the people who who inhabit these clubs. It's a show, man. I mean, it's like, and I've wanted to write about that. I've wanted to write about, you know, not in whether I just, my, my thought was call it the shop. So like the, the heartbeat of the show is the professional staff that works at a club, but it's all the interludes with, with all of the, you know, whether it's the hoity toity set or the bratty kids or, or, you know, like the, the people who actually are there with with good intentions and not to point out everything that's wrong with the food service and the range balls. Like the country club community is a hilarious comedy. It just is. And I really believe that that if you if you centered it around, you know, the director of golf or the head professional and and the professional staff and the the outside staff and the food and be- I, I mean, I'm just telling you, I've wanted to do that. So that's another one. Yeah. You know, Gary, if you ever need some, you know, uh, riff sessions on this, I've thought long and hard about this because part of this early podcast, we started just interviewing PJ professionals because I was meeting these guys and I was hearing stories and we, you know, share a beer. And I, I said, these are the guys, they see it all. They, this is, this is hilarious. But my here's my miscalculation. It's also a very political environment, whereas you know the one person on the board doesn't enjoy what you have to say, you're gone. So when I put them on the show, none of those stories came out. It was it was dull. It was just bland. So uh, I think it is the form has to be a sitcom. It has to be something that that's takes what it is. The modern it's day Caddyshack and makes it a little bit more realistic, right? It, it, that's it, yes. It it is a. It's not serious. It's a sitcom. But there is more truth and humor than in anything else. Um, and, and I've seen it, you know, I worked at, 
I worked at four really, you know, really neat places and different, you know, all on the all on the private side of of the golf industry sector. But nonetheless, you know, I was on that side of the counter and I've been in, you know, this later stage of my life on the other side of the counter. And, you know, I'm around a lot of guys who are and, and women who are members at clubs. And there's the stories are endless of the behavior and and this idiosyncratic syncratic stuff that that you know you could take one person I, I'm just I just I really believe that it is it's not like well you could do a season are you joking you it would it would have a tremendous life to it I'm I'm imagining right now I'm predicting it decade from now writer Gary Williams probably Matt you're more of a producer so producer Matt Considine <laughs> The golf version of The Office, right? That's what I'm imagining right now. Like that sort of sitcom comedy, like and like you said, Gary. Truth, comedy is is the most truthful venue out there. It it really, really is. No, no I, kidding. I, I, I will tell you. Like I've had, you know, I have so many different. Like I I I do know this that the director of golf, who would be a central figure, because not that I don't think everything would flow through him. I'm a huge fan of The Catcher in the Rye, and there was a time in my life where I would reread it every summer. Uh, Holden Caulfield, to me, like, it, there's that figure is one of the assistants. Like, he's really bright, but he's not, he's, he's, he's okay as a player. Um, he, 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 he can cut through the bullshit, and he can see, like, like who really is, is, you know, like a bona fide good person at the club. Anyway, my, the, the thing, though, like that person would kind of be the voice of the show, but the director of golf, who would be a central figure, he's good, but he thinks he's much better. Like he's way too serious about his own game. He, he you know, he he's extrapolating his stats from these section events where he finishes like tied for 36. I mean, I just again, I've spent too much time thinking about this stuff. The person you're describing strikes me as the one sitting there critiquing John Rahm up on the TV on Saturday over a single. Like, why would he do that? Like, he just needs to figure if he just if I could just talk with him, he would have it all figured out and he would win seven of the next ten majors. That I, I'm that's the guy that you're describing to me right now. Yes, yeah. The the guy he does, he has no malice in his heart, but he's at at heart he's a doofus. Like it's just and the staff you know, lampoons the hell out of him behind his back. But, but, you know, he is, he is providing, you know, the advancement in their livelihood. So they have to be somewhat respectful. Anyway. Yes. That, that he would do. Who's, who's your leading uh, member, member character for the show. I want to, there's so many options you could have from the membership, but which one are you putting front and center episode one? Um, it, it's, it, you know, you just touched on something. It, I, I think that the epidemic, of the person who joins the club to not get the joy out of it, but to point out the shortcomings of the club and the people who work at the club, that person roams this earth in a way um, that we need to call the herd on those people. That would be the person, that person who, who bullies his way onto every committee, greens committee, membership committee, food and beverage, uh, special events, um, and again, total tight ass, probably cheats at golf. Um, 
Yeah, that 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 person. Yeah. Yeah, they, they they need called out, and that's why that's another reason why it's you know made for sitcom. It has to be called out, and that character people will identify and say, "Oh yeah, that's so and so at at my home club." I, it never ceases to amaze me the um, <laughs> the self importance of that character because they will stand in front of a busy pro shop, you know, sunny seventy five degree day. There are people everywhere. The phone's ringing off the hook, and they will stand in front of the pros and the assistant pros and just talk about their golf game. It's like, buddy, you got to have some sense of of appreciation for what these people are doing. They're 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 making everything go. Like, get out of their way. Leave them alone. I worked with a guy at my first job. He was a really good player. He had no business being in a shop uh, because he had zero patience. Um, and anytime someone, would, and we were, this was at the Governor's Club in Chapel Hill right when it opened. So we were in a double wide trailer. So you couldn't like get away from people. You were, you were, you were interfacing with, with this new membership and the club was trying to find its footing. And anytime someone would come in and would test his patience, he would start slapping his thigh. <laughs> like, like, like it was an audible signal tick, like, like shut it down. Like I've had enough. <laughs> and, and he was also the same person who would say, you know, he, he didn't have the guts to say it to their face, but as soon as they walked out, he would say it, you know, to, to the rest of us, if they would start talking about their round. And then again, he would start slapping his thigh. And then we would walk out. He'd say, if we were going to go all 18, I needed a cart. That was his line. Like, if you're going to tell me about every hole, but that, yeah, that person, <laughs> they're, they, they think that they're an expert on merchandising. Like, why do we have those shoes? And again, this guy always is wearing clothes that are one size too small. Like he thinks he's fitter than he is. And he's got that little paunch that he's wearing like Euro trash. Like he's trying to pull off like something that, that he shouldn't have on. Um, again, he's just, takes himself way too serious. Like, like uh, your buddy, Brendan Dijon dressed as uh, Victor Hovland, right? <laughs> it's kind of what I just. <laughs> no, no, he's not, he's not as stout as Brendan, but he's, he's not like, God, who would it be? I, I'll tell you who it would be because he's, he's, you know, affectionately, he's grown a nice little, 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 you know, kettle now in his advancing age, Matt Kuchar. He's that guy. There you go. It's Matt Kuchar trying to dress in Jay Lindeberg. <laughs> yes. God, I'd pay for that. I'd have a subscription for that for sure. Oh, man. My wife's going to love that. She's a huge Cooch fan. He can do no wrong in my wife's eyes. Even if he wore Jay Lindenberg, my wife would still be obsessed with Matt Kuchar. Uh um, Gary, this is taking me to, to five clubs, you know, your, your creation, uh, here with, with so many talented people. I think, uh, I'm a reader, I'm a listener. I love what you're doing with the podcast. Um, I love, here's what I love about it, Gary, is that you, the people you've brought on and Jay's one of them, Jay Bills, who, if anyone listened to our episode with him, you know how crazy he is about the game of golf, how much he loves it. Johnson Wagner, Brendan DeJong, uh, Gil Hance. Emma Carpenter and your and yourself are the contributors now. And I, I just, I think as I get older, I look for, you know, being so into this game, I just look for authenticity and I look for people that truly love the game in the way that I do. Maybe they don't see it the same way as I always do, but just truly love the game. I think you've assembled a crew of, of passionate golf lovers. And, and when you guys get going and talk about, 
you know, whatever it be, whether it's the professional tournament of the week or it's um, uh, uh, any certain topic, distance, what 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 have you. You, you guys care. I mean, in, in a way that like me and my buddies, Kevin and ourselves, like the way we care. So I I just commend you for getting this thing started. I wanted to hear from from you, you know, what it's been like because that it seems like it's a, a very different outlet for you than than your career at the Golf Channel and what you were doing. I'll tell you what it's been akin to. Uh, for, for many days and months, I have felt like the offensive coordinator of the Iowa football team, one yard in a cloud of dust. Uh, like the, like the, the, we can't advance the ball. Like, yeah, we think we're, we're like, yeah, yeah, that, you know, that sounded good. Run that play. Um, and, the, you know, it's, you lose two yards. Um, I, and I, I say that, you know, humorously, but it's the truth. I mean, there's a lot of days where it was, you know, one yard in a cloud of dust. And as you guys, you know, you, the, the proliferation of, of the podcast community is an extraordinary thing. I think it's great. And we can all, you know, take the time, find what you like, and you'll find it. Um, but with that comes the challenge of, you know, okay, how do you, how do you differentiate yourself? And then, you know, for us, there, there, ha- there is a component of, of the monetization that is, that's, you know, it's, it's important. So the one thing that, that I told my partners who are, you know, not only good friends, but guys who have built a really good business that, that we're not relying on five clubs to, to keep the lights on, uh, that is Signature Sports Group, is, hey guys, we're going to have an aggregate of voices They'll contribute when they can. Um, they all have, you know, the same sensibilities that we do. We love golf. We love golf for the various things that it gives to us. Um, but hopefully we don't take ourselves too serious. And and the most important thing is that when Jay or Gil or, or Emma Carpenter uh, and now with Johnson and Brendan joining us want to do something, do it. It's your show. It's it's. It's, you know, it's, you have the autonomy to go in any direction that you want. And, and, you know, Jay and Gil and I have just embarked on doing this thing called the five club scramble. Our first show was with Jim Nance. Those two guys didn't know who the guest was. They won't know who the next one is, which is we're doing in, in two weeks time. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's five clubs is, you know, as I told, um, the guys that are my partners, Look, this is about a conversation about something we all value, and that is the game of golf. So, like you, you know, you said, look, it's not just about talking about who won the RBC Heritage, which we're interested in, but it's not just that. I mean, this is not about just covering professional golf. This is talking about, you know, where are we going with this distance debate? You know, what do we like about golf course architecture, college golf? And Emma is doing a great job at that. She's actually, she's interviewing Sam Bennett next week. She's, she's talked to Gordon Sargent and Rachel Keene and, and, and gosh, I mean, the, the Cootie brothers, she did an interview with Bryson DeChambeau. It wasn't about Liv. It was about one of the great amateur careers of all time with the obligatory Liv question that was in there. Um, so that's, and that's, you know, we want, you know, this, this kind of aggregate of voices looking at golf with their own view of the game as a, an elite player, as somebody who covered the game, as somebody who designed some of the best holes in the world, as the sick, ill 
terminally ill golfer that Billis is, um, the, the college golfer. We're going to add a, a caddy soon enough. Um, we want somebody who actually does right for a living uh, to be joining us, and, and we're ambitious, and, and we aspire to make that happen. So, yeah, it's coming along. What, going back to the start of Five Clubs, what inspired you to just get it off the ground? Uh, Kevin, it was, it was, you know, I've been lucky enough that, you know, during the course of my broadcasting career, I've, I've been involved with things that were new and, and there's a certain motivation that comes with trying to build something. I did that with a local radio show starting in 1999, um, started it again, 10 years later when I left for Sirius XM to be the first morning host on Mad Dog Radio. Same thing with the morning, uh, uh, with Morning Drive. Um, they were all new, they were fledgling. They, 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 had, they had no traction at all. Um, and, and one of the other primary reasons was one, I like to build things. I like to be a part of, you know, this was another, you know, kind of adage from my father that there are very few things that are of greater reward in life than collective achievement. I don't want to do something alone. I want to do it with other people. I want us to be able to to share ideas and and, and come to consensus and, and and figure out what's the right way to do something. And then in time, be able to look at each other and go, we did this. We did this together. So that that was absolutely part of it. And then the, the other part was I never was, I was never a malcontent. I felt like I was a good teammate working in the corporate part of of, of broadcast media, independence feels pretty good. It's, it's a nice feeling at this stage of my life. Um, and I wanted that. I wanted to, I wanted to say, you know what, not recklessly or, or as a renegade, I'm going to do this. And guess what? I don't have to ask four different people if it's okay. And it's not about doing things that are cavalier or irresponsible. It's, I'm going to do this. This is a good idea. And I don't need you to tell me whether it is or it isn't. Um, that's a very liberating feeling. So yeah, that was important. And here's my screenplay and we are putting this into production. I didn't, don't stop with five clubs. We got, we got sitcoms to write next, Gary. Yes. We got, um, no, you, you mentioned the proliferation of this podcast space. I call it a space. I don't, I don't know what it really is, but, uh, you know, Kevin and I are, are a product of that. And I think it's so for someone like you sitting in this, this world, I, I have to imagine it was very different because, you know, for us, it was a realization all, all of a sudden that we can start a podcast. We can have people on and that we want to talk to. We can talk about the game of golf. You know, we're doing it anyways. Let's, let's bring people in to experience it with us. And, and that was kind of how we, we started um, doing this. We're six years as a podcast, which is crazy to me, with no professional background. You and, and many of your contributors, Gary, you guys are professional journalists. You spent decades, you know, doing these things. And, and you're also podcasters. And so I'm just curious from, from your perspective, because one thing that I've grown to appreciate in this is that uh, there was this 
and, and maybe pandemic had something to do with it. I don't know, but there was a lot of amateur journalists that that got into it just like us. They started pocket. Many of them are my dear friends and they've grown huge audiences. You know, I think the probably one of the largest, the Barstool experience, right? It's just fans talking about the game. I, and, and I think that's very cool. And, but the, the thing that I've grown to appreciate more and more as time goes on, and I'll use your recent guest, Michael Bamberger, as a great example. Like listening to a couple of chuckleheads talk about the game is is entertaining and fun. Listening to Michael Bamberger is a different experience. And 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 so I don't I I guess it's it, for me, the podcast space is kind of where those two things merge. And it's so weird. Isn't it weird to you? <laughs> it's it's uh I, I tell you what it is. Um it's kind of surprising. Um, and I say that not because I don't have my eyes wide open as to, you know, kind of what's next, uh, whether it be in, you know, when it comes to education or technology or healthcare. I mean, I try to be informed. I, I never thought we would be here. I, I never thought, and I mean this with all the respect in the world, uh, because they're damn good at what they do. That the idea that that an outfit, and and again, understand what I'm saying here because they're they they absolutely deserve to be there. When I was at the Masters and I'm looking at at Andy Johnson of the Fried Egg, and he's sitting in the interview room, and he's a credentialed, rightfully credentialed member of the media covering the Masters. Like, holy shit, really? Like, you had to work for the L.A. Times and the Chicago Tribune. In the New York Times um, to cover the Masters, things are very different now, and and that's just it. Is that as long as as long as you know, really really bright people are in charge of certain things like like cr- credential allocation, um, that the right people are going to be there. But but like bloggers or podcast content primarily. But it's not just, look, the digital medium is, that's now, that's the future, that's where we are. So there's so much fragmentation about like cable television and network television, where you get, you know, where, where are you going to decide to, you know, learn from or get information from? I didn't see that day. I didn't see the day where, where you know, you would have, and again, this is to their great credit, four college buddies getting together. And, and creating something which started as a text thread and has now become one of the most viable business entities in the golf industry, and that is no laying up. That is all to their credit. I just didn't think the rigidity of the golf industry would allow the penetration of that type of stuff into this, this kind of, you know, for way too long, frumpy, you know, hoity-toity world. It's a new world. And thank God it is because those voices are not only being heard, they're being respected, they're being elevated. Um, and, it, and I'll tell you what it's done. It's made everybody else in quote legacy media either step up or step off because they're really good at what they do. That's so very, very well said. Um, I know we're approaching the hour and I, I got to get this question in because I think one of the things that comes through with you, Gary, and everything you do, everything I've listened to you, read of your blog posts, just this hour conversation is golf is a fabric of your life. Like it's interwoven into your life um, in a way that you can't pull it apart and say, here's my life and here's the golf life. 
And I think that's true for a lot of people in golf, right? For a lot of us that love golf, golf, some, I always use the phrase golf embodies life. It's a, it's a microcosm of life. So I was just hoping you could comment on that relationship between life and golf. And what is it about golf that does that to so many of us um, chuckleheads, as Matt would say? Yeah. Um, you know, here's the thing about it is that it could be, the nice thing is that there's so many elements of the game uh, that could be the pull for you, Kevin, or for you, Matt, and and for me. The 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 earliest the earliest reason that I, you know, wanted to devote time to being around it was because it gave me undivided time and uninterrupted time with my father, and my father, you know, traveled a fair amount, and golf was in, was a fair element of, you know, a pretty large element of, of that travel, entertaining people. He dragged me everywhere. And I didn't think like, I was too young to, to, first of all, have any level of introspection in my mind at that time. Like, my God, what the hell do these guys think? Like, here's this 14 year old kid and we're on this boondoggle and here he is. And we're trying to tell dirty jokes and, and, and drink a bunch of beers and not that it was, again, it was not debauchery, but it said that's what, you know, that's what it was. And this was the 80s. Um, and yet, for whatever reason, my intuition told me, know your role, know your space, leave them alone. And so I, I was kind of, look, I was, a, I was a sports junkie. So I, like these guys like sports and I was kind of a nerd about knowing stuff. So, you know, that was a good entry point for me to conversations. But for me, golf was... It was my dad. It was time with him. It was going to these special places. And then what I found was, one, I, 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 I had the sense to know I was lucky that growing up in a place like Ridgewood Country Club was not normal. Um, it was a hell of a place to fall in love with the game. I, I found the landscapes and the history interesting. And every club has a history. Some you know, more, more, I think more celebrated and rightfully so. A lot of clubs have some checkered history. Don't run from it, embrace it, learn from it. Um, so it's like, I liked history. Clubs have history. I liked, I, I liked the setting. It was like, holy cow. Yeah. I like playing CYO basketball, but not in some dank gym in Upper Saddle River every day. I mean, I wanted, I wanted to be on a golf course. And then, and then, it was my dad. And then, you know, there, there are layers we add to why we love it. And now presently, and not that this is new, I love being with my friends. I love being around them. They're, it's therapeutic for me. Um, it's, it's where we can, you know, still, you know, bust each other's chops, talk about life, talk about the next steps for children. Um, and I'll tell you one other thing we've talked about writing golf has been very blessed that there are a lot of people who devoted their careers to writing about the game and their work stands up today like herbert warren wind and bernard darwin um you know and dan jenkins these 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 men were titans and wrote about the game in a way that you read it today and it may seem a little bit colloquial um but but it's it's brilliant stuff so you add all that stuff together and you got somebody who's, I can't get away from it. It's too important. 
so important. You bring you bring up your dad, and I had read about your favorite golf experience. I believe is uh, a day at Muirfield. We're yes. gonna we're gonna get to Scotland somehow. Uh, a day at Muirfield with your father. Can you break that da- that day down for us a little bit? Yeah, it was it was um, it was two days after the two thousand and two. Open Championship that Ernie Els won in the weirdest four-man playoff. They were split into twosomes. Very bizarre. Um, and so there was a gentleman, John Crabby, who was a member, who was a business associate of my father's. So we went out there uh, Tuesday morning and and played our own ball in the morning, went back in, put on our coat and tie, had the most gluttonous lunch you've ever seen in your life, um, and then changed, went back out. And, and played alternate shot, which is brilliant, that you can't play your own ball after lunchtime. And you can say, well, that's, that's impractical. No, it's actually it's perfect because um, you get around very quickly. But I will tell you that my father, you know, he was my partner. And so, what it, first of all, the day was, it was incredible. Um, but he was hitting his, our tee shot on the eighth tee, and I'm looking at him at his silhouette and you know i'm thinking to myself i can't possibly love something or love someone more than i love this moment and that man more than i feel right now um and i was in my mid-20s at the time um actually a little bit older than that uh no no let me let me correct the time frame on that because i yeah I played it again in 02. This was actually in 1995, the fall of 1995, September of 1995. So anyway, um, was not married yet, did not have a wife, um, but felt this profound um, level of love that I just went, okay, why am I receiving this? And 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 who is who is responsible for this? The person responsible was the person that I was feeling this for. Uh, and it was my dad. So, the, you know, there, there's nothing that will ever penetrate me again the way that did. And that's fine. That's not supposed to happen a lot. It's supposed to happen and you're supposed to hold on to it because it gives you, you know, a level of perspective on on why you value things. And I shared that for the first time the night before my wedding because I had felt that level of love again for another person. So, um, yeah, pretty good golf holes and very good company led to the reason why that will stand up for all time. And I know, uh, thank you for sharing because Kevin and I have extremely strong relationships with our fathers and this love of the game we owe to them as well. And I know so many of our listeners have a relationship with a parent that, uh, it is, is it's something special about getting out there with a parent, isn't it? And and being able to um, see them in their highs and lows on the golf course. And I, I I think about my rounds with my dad that he he does talk a lot. So do I. So it's usually it's not that quiet usually when we're playing. However, we don't even need to talk if if that that isn't a prerequisite. It's just being together in the pursuit of this game is such a. Uh, a spiritual experience, the what you just described. I, I can't describe any other way than spiritual, Gary. And uh, I think that's cool about the game of golf. I really do. It, it is. Um, again, uh, my younger daughter plays some, 
She's got the inclination to, to, you know, be good at it. Um, she kind of learned it, you know, by, by kind of the optics of, of studying people because golf's always on on the television. She's now in college, um, being out there with her. But yeah, I, I look, um, when I see fathers with sons on the golf course, you kidding, tickles the hell out of me. There's nothing better. Or, or, or you know, moms and, and sons or daughters. Um, these, are, these, are, these are precious, precious moments. They're great. Well, there's something about golf that I think, like, one, Matt asked you about Murfield, which I've called the most perfect golf course. Actually, I think I've borrowed that from Jim Hartzell, called it the most perfect golf course. Um, but your story was nothing about the golf course, right? It was about your relationship with your dad. And there's something about, even at Murfield, where it might only be two hours and 10 minutes or two hours and 15 minutes in all shot, but you're only spending about three minutes of that time playing golf, right? And the rest of that time, you have to be immersed with who you're spending that time with. So not only do you get to know people during that time, but I think you also then select the, the people you play golf with, you select because you love them, right? Because you, and you develop relationships with them where you can be vulnerable and open, you know, over a silly game at the end of the day. That's, that's absolutely true. Um, there is, you know, not to make this seem like you're, you're exposing yourself to the world to, to, you know, your, your most sensitive frailties. There's vulnerability associated with playing the game. Um, and you're right. I mean, the, the, the actual physical exercise is a finite <laughs> amount of time compared to the balance. And where does the, what, what do you, what, why, why are you getting something so redeemable out of the balance of time? Um, because as I, I wrote about recently, it's, it's, it's about the time, not the score. And, and, you know, maybe I wouldn't have written that 30 years ago, probably not. Um, but that's what happens with life. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm a competitive person and I want to beat the people I'm playing with, but I want to be with the people I'm playing with more than I want to beat them. That's, that's wonderful. And, and just I know you got a good golf game, Gary, and we didn't talk much about it, but there's vulnerability for all of us to get out there. I mean, just imagine how vulnerable you have to be to be Jay Billis teeing it up with you, you know? So just try to keep that in mind. Be a little nicer to your friend. He asked us to ask you that. Nice. Actually. Not nice. He is, he is the most callous, insensitive person you would ever play with. He is Hogan without talent. He doesn't speak. He doesn't talk. He is, he is, he is, in some ways, he is the perfect golfer because nobody is more selfish than he is. <laughs> <laughs> so who's going to play him in the sitcom? Because obviously somebody's going to The guy that never leaves the, the club, it sounds like. He eats every meal there. <laughs> he's, there yes. when, he's there when you leave at night, and the first thing in the morning, he's still in that same seat. Is that, is that who he is? He is, I, 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 and I will, I'll, be, I'll be partially serious for just one fleeting moment. Um, He's, he's one of the most important people in my life. Um, and he's been not only uh, a friend, but an advocate. And, and the fact that he loves golf to the degree that he does uh, is, is I, I, again, I, you know, knowing where he's playing right now and know how much time that he puts into it. And by the way, knowing how much, you know, he tries to advance the careers of people uh, in the game who are at the clubs that he's associated with. Um, yeah, we've had, you know, look, we played 72 holes in one day walking at Band and Dunes together. If I can survive that day with him, I can handle pretty much anything with him. 
You'll have to listen, Jay. He gave a little recap of that, actually. So it's stuck. It's stuck. I'm sure he did. And we don't, and, and you know, we usually don't talk about other guests on the show this much, but I, we could tell that you guys have a very genuine friendship, and and that was cool to to uh, learn. And uh, as golf friends here, uh, Kevin and I, we we just we recognize how important that is too, and just so cool that you guys have have this kinship around the game. Yeah, we're I, I, we've got some some trips lined up for this summer, um, and he will be suffocating and insufferable. Um, and I'll enjoy every moment of it. <laughs> well, Gary, we enjoyed every moment of the day. This was really a pleasure. Thank you for giving us a little extra time and, and being able to chat with us. Um, we'll be tuning in for five clubs and everything you guys got going on there. So keep up the great work. Hey, Kevin and Matt, thank you. Uh, happy that you guys are doing what you're doing, that you're investing the time and the energy into something that you love. Um, and I hope that we can do it again. We'll make that happen for sure. And and play some golf. We'd like to tee it up. We can do that too. Cool. Thanks, Gary. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks for listening. Gary Dubs. Big Gary Dubs. What did you think, Professor? I was pumped to get some advice early in that interview that we could then use to the rest of the interview, right? It set me <laughs> at ease. Like, it's like, oh, they, actually, he might be interviewing us here and, and like taking the lead. No. So like. I felt like that was the laziest way to start an interview. Hey, tell me how to do my job. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, don't worry about what you prepared. Just riff with the person. I'm like, all right, that's what we're going to do. That's high yeah. notes. And that's just, let's just have a conversation. But see, someone like him makes that job so easy. Like He does. Us. He does. And, and I'm, I'm, I am grateful that we started it that way. Because if you're going to start it with anybody that's been on the show, you know, I, I thought he was the one because he just seems like such a student of it. And, and now it makes more sense to me. I wasn't aware of his literary background and what his mom instilled in him. And that, that, was, that all kind of came together for me uh, of like, oh yeah, yeah, this guy was built with that DNA, but then he also treats it as a craft and he reads so much and he's just you know, eternally curious is what it kind of came across as with me, which was really cool. And, and yeah, I, I scrapped like 80% of my questions after he shared some of the best insights on how to do an interview. So what thoughts did you walk away with? What was any major thought? Because, I mean, we touched on so much of life and golf. Um, what did you walk away? What's going to stick with you? Yeah, I, man. Um, the, the, uh, there was so much. But I, I, his dad's quote, hearing, this has to do a little bit with the interview skills, but uh, hearing is a sense and listening is a skill. Um, just that we all have those intrinsic senses that, you know, everybody can hear, but, but listening, you can develop and get better at. And just how he talked about the importance of listening and, and how, how important that is. And it kind of makes you, I think that's one cool thing of the podcast world is if you tune into podcasts, you usually tend, you're not talking, you might be talking to yourself, but most of the time you're, you're trying to listen to something and, and take something away and, and contribute, you know, to the world uh, from it. So I, I, I thought that was powerful, a takeaway for me. What about for you? What was a, a takeaway from the conversation? You know, I think, and this repeats a little bit of what we talked about um, in our interview with Gary, but vulnerability. Um, I don't think that had been like explicit on my mind in terms of what golf affords and why this, this life golf relationship exists. But there's something about being on that golf course for all that time with someone where, you know, you only spend those three minutes of actually playing golf and leads to you being more vulnerable, right? It breaks down, you say it breaks down masculinity in a lot of ways for a lot of people um, was one of the things that came to mind right away where 
you know, definitely we're brought up as males and especially within U.S. society that the guard our emotions and to not show them, right? And, the, um, and I think the golf course offers that place to open up with your friends. I know some of the most meaningful conversations I've had with my friends, including yourself, you're on the golf course and you just dive into something maybe you haven't wanted to share with other people and you've been guarded on, then you get in the course and you're like, well, let's just do it. And you, you have those those hard conversations about whatever is going on. You know, I've been through a divorce. Uh, the golf course was an outlet for me with my friend Banks Robinson to have those conversations when I was going through that of like, how do you get through this? Um, mm. And the golf course is just, it's a vehicle for that vulnerability and openness. Uh, and I think that's, there's something beautiful about that. Yeah, that, that that's powerful because, um, and not to make an anecdote of it, but my my wife said recently, uh, or it was like a meme she sent me of um, golf exists because men don't know how to ask their friends to go for a walk, and you know my wife's been back in in our hometown and some reconnecting with some old friends and they go for a walk and, and they they take the dogs or push a, the kids in a stroller and they t- and they chat and uh, I mean it's a male dominated game and uh, what I tell her I flipped it back at her I was like. Well, well, you guys just pick up some clubs and do the same thing. What are you doing? You know, and uh, you're so you're so right. It's a, it's a way for us to connect. And his Gary's relationship with his father uh, that was, I, I teared up on this pod. I, I haven't had that experience. And talk about coming to uh, an interview with expectations. Uh, I, I would not have told you that I was going to tear up. And I think multiple times on this show I did because Gary and, and I think that's what Gary's secret is of of his success is. Uh, you really do connect with them because of sincerity and and because he makes you feel something that that he also feels. And that's the care for the game and what it's given him. So um, I want to have him back. I, I thought that was really just a, a wonderful time. Yeah, we're incredibly lucky to have voices like his in the game of golf and here on, on the Backdrop Podcast. Um, I just want to take this opportunity to thank you for bringing me on this season. I mean, the people we've got to talk to, you know, I'm sitting there in the middle of that interview with Gary thinking, wow, like how special this is to be hearing someone so in touch with his life in golf. Just speak to it. Um, we, we needed you, Professor. I think I think the reality is you're, uh, I'm, a, I'm a competitive guy and you're a much better listener than I am. Uh, to quote Gary Williams, that's important. And so, you know, I, I see how good you are at listening. I'm like, I need to listen better. I need to take something here and, and go deeper. So, uh we push each other to be to be the best. That's that's what the Backdrop Podcast is all about. Um, and New Club Golf Society. Thank you again to the team at New Club for now sponsoring the podcast. Uh, Membership still available for 2023. Check out all the happenings and, and cool things in this community for passionate golfers at newclub.golf. Professor, have a great weekend, man. You as well. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Enjoy your week.